All right, well, welcome again to Easter weekend. We've had a relatively full weekend already. Uh, Friday night, if you were able to come to the community Easter uh, cantata, our choir, and, uh, and about seven other churches' choirs all got together and uh, sang and presented a great uh, a cantata for us Friday night. And then uh, hopefully at some point, uh, you've eaten uh, plenty of Easter eggs, Reese's Easter eggs. Uh, I saw somebody put on, uh, my sister-in-law put on one of those little message boards. I don't know how many uh, Cadbury eggs it takes to equate happiness, but 27 isn't it. Uh, and so we kind of get together with family, hope that you have had the time or maybe you're planning to get to do that uh, uh, this afternoon uh, or this evening. If you've been with us or if you've maybe been watching online, you know that we've been working our way through a series I've entitled King Jesus, where we've been looking at the events surrounding the Easter narrative and how they all point to Jesus' kingship uh, over the earth and how he rules and reigns. We've looked back into the Old Testament and see how he's fulfilled Old Testament prophecy or whether he's quoting Old Testament scripture and kind of connected the dots back to what was happening throughout the Easter narrative and, and, and really waiting for uh, what the Jewish people have been waiting for this whole time. We've seen Jesus kind of, kind of encapsulate the, the coming Messiah, the, the one that they've been waiting for for uh, thousands of years. Is that the rain? Do you hear the rain? Wow, that's wild. I thought either Jesus is coming back or it's something happening outside. So the, the Israelites have been waiting for Jesus to come back as king, as Messiah, and they just continually missed it. They didn't see it. They didn't put the things together. They've been waiting for Israel to be set back right in redemptive history. And, and so this week, what I want to do is I want us to wrap up this entire thought with something that I believe is central, not only to Jesus's kingship, but to our salvation, uh, our future. And, and those are the two thoughts this morning are the crown and the throne. The crown and the throne. We're going to look at a lot of scripture this morning. I'm going to try to build a case semi-logically through, uh, through what scripture says. And so we're going to be looking at a couple of different places today. So it's going to be, most of it's all going to be on the screen. But if you want to follow along, just kind of get ready. Uh, now when we think about the crown, we normally think of something like this. This is, this is the picture of the, the British royal crown, right? If you were here on the first week, uh, you remember me saying that I don't care anything about any of that, right? I, I could care less about the royal family or all that because it's not, they're not our kings, right? They're not, they're not any kind of rule or reign over us. They don't have anything to do with uh, we as Americans because of um, 1776 and all those good things, right? But this crown... $39 million crown, five pounds worth of gold. Uh, I have it written down. Five rubies, 17 sapphires, 11 emeralds, 273 pearls, 2,868 diamonds, including the 105 carat Konior diamond from India. This is an expensive crown. You take that with the other quote-unquote crown jewels. There's a sword, there's a scepter, and there's this little like round orb thing that's all covered in jewels. All together, $4 billion worth of just jewels and gold to adorn their queen. Miss Queen Elizabeth received this crown in 1953. Uh, every, there, I saw an article that said 20 million people 
watched the coronation service of Queen Elizabeth on their black and white TVs in 1953. That's a lot of people for that time to tune into one event. That coronation service, that crowning service happens uh, at uh, an abbey and is presided over by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Has been for since like 1,073. It's been almost a 1,000 years. They've been doing it the same way. They take lots of pomp and lots of circumstance. Lots of, lots of things are done. As a matter of fact, when Elizabeth was crowned the, king, the queen of England, she also takes oaths not only to protect and serve kind of like you know, what we think of when we take the oath of office, but they have uh, Great Britain and all their territories, everything from South Africa all the way over to Canada and all these different things. And so they do that. But... If you know your history, you also know that the, the king or queen of England is also the head of the Church of England. And that dates all the way back to Henry VIII. Remember Henry VIII wanted a divorce and the Pope wouldn't give him one? He said, so fine, we're not going to be Catholic anymore. I'll start my own church and I'll be the head of it and I can make the rules, right? And so every time they crown a king or queen, that king or queen takes an oath to maintain the Protestant Reformed religion the doctrine, worship, discipline, and government thereof. So if you have a problem with church in England, you have a problem with the crown. It's a big deal. There's layers of things that kind of take place with that. Now, pretty spectacular event. And that's what we expect from a crowning moment. We, we expect all the fanfare and the accolade. We expect the, the jewels and the, and the ceremony. We expect the regalia and the exposure. I read these verses, I think, almost every week that we've been in the series, but let's look at it again. Matthew chapter 27 paints a little different picture. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. They took the staff and they struck him on the head again and again. And after they mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. And they led him away to crucify him. See, Jesus' coronation was it anything like we just talked about? It was in a dungeon, not in an abbey. Surrounded by guards, not the aristocracy of England. He was stripped and mocked and beaten and bloody. And they crowned him, not with jewels, but with thorns. Something like this. And I, you know, I've read this thousand times and I never really quite understood why thorns. Last week we read about how Pilate asked Jesus if he was in fact the king of the Jews and Jesus says yes it is as you say. And the guards mocked him as king, they dressed him as a king and they crowned him as a king. But this crowning moment, see, it was way bigger than the guards ever even imagined. Let's, let's look at this from a, kind of an odd place. If you've got your Bible, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I read a little bit of this Friday night. But it's, it's, this is Paul right at the church in Corinth, and he's, he's kind of setting up an argument here. 
And the way he sets it up is so beautifully written, and then he kind of supports it with, we're going to look in a verse in Romans. Uh, we're going to kind of bounce around a little bit. But 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12 says this. If it's preached that Christ has not been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Right? Okay, so Paul is trying to kind of establish an argument for the resurrection of believers. And he's saying, listen, you can't preach that Jesus has been resurrected and then say, ah, resurrection doesn't happen. You can't, you can't have both of those. It's either one or the other. He keeps going, verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. Everything that we believe hinges on the fact that Christ was resurrected. If we were to keep reading this chapter, Paul goes on to say things like, if we say there's no resurrection, then we're giving false witness about God. We're essentially saying God's a liar because we say God raised Jesus from the dead. We can't say those things about that. And he says, if there is no resurrection, then this life that we're living right now is it. It's the end. And those who have already gone on, who've already passed away, then they're helpless and they're hopeless. There's nothing for them. And if that's the case, then we should be pitied above all men. And then Paul draws this incredible parallel. Let's read it. This is in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21 and 22. He says this, For since death came through a man... The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Skip down, verse 42. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown in a natural body. It's raised in a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, a life-giving spirit. What Paul is doing, and he's setting up this symbolism, this first Adam, last Adam symbolism. Created man was the first Adam. Eternal God is the last Adam. Now, a few years after Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthian church, he wrote a letter to the church in Rome. And look what he says in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. So through this first Adam, death entered. That was the penalty. We understand that, right? The penalty of sin is death. Keep saying, verse 15. But the gift... Oh, man, the gift is not like the trespass. The gift has nothing, it's not anywhere close to being related to what happened to cause death to enter. For if the many died by the trespasses of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, 
The gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and through that one man and brought justification. For if by the trespasses of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? He's saying, look, this one man, Adam, he sinned. And he brought sin to the whole world. And when he sinned, death entered. Oh, but this other man, Jesus, the other Adam, the last Adam, he never sinned. And he brought life to the whole world. One man brought death. The other man brought a gift of a sacrifice and brought salvation to the whole world world. If sin and death reign through Adam, then how much more will the abundant provision of grace reign through this life in Jesus? He's consistently contrasting Adam and Jesus, death and life, condemnation and justification. He's saying as bad as it was in Adam, as hopeless as we were in Adam, we have hope in Jesus. And I know you're thinking, this is the weirdest Easter sermon I've ever heard. But listen, listen, when Adam sinned, he brought the curse of sin into the world. That curse is death. When Jesus died on the cross, he bore the curse of sin for us. He paid the death penalty for sin of humanity. And he did that spiritually through his sacrifice. He did that physically through his body. And he did that royally, or if you will, kingly, through his crown. You think, well, how? How are we connecting the crown to this? Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. This is the book of the beginnings. You guys know this story. I'm not going to give you the whole length and breadth of it because we just don't have time to read it all. Genesis starts off with creation. God creates everything. We know that. He creates man. He creates woman. And he places them in the garden to rule and reign in the garden, right? And in that moment, something happens. You can eat of any tree in the garden. Just don't eat of the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you guys know Serpent comes, approaches Eve, he denies the word of God, he questions the word of God, and he deceives Eve. Eve takes the fruit, she eats it, she shares with her husband, and sin enters, and everything changes. Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. Greatest question in the Bible. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? 
And Adam here does what every man does. He takes full responsibility for his mistakes. He owns up to it, says, it's my fault. Wrong. He says, that woman you put here with me. Never mind the fact that if we read back at the end of chapter 2, he's like bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Like he's really excited because Eve's there. Now it's that woman. That woman, she gave me some fruit and I ate it. Eve then tells God what happens. And God does something pretty incredible. First thing he does is he curses the serpent. Like we remember that. You'll crawl on your belly all the days of your life. Enmity and agony, bruise the heel, stomp the head kind of stuff. Y'all remember that out of Genesis 3. Then he curses the woman because of sin. Great is your pain and childbearing will increase your desire for your husband and he will rule over you. It's this whole idea of rule and, and mastery. And then he curses the man. By sweat of your brow, you will eat of the fruit of the land. No longer will it just grow easily. You're going to have to work it. And then he says, from the dust of the ground you were made, and the dust you will return. He says, the, death, the penalty of the sin is death. Death enters in the curse after sin. But if you know the story, you know something else happens in there. And it's just kind of slid in. It's just kind of interesting. But God does something before he curses the man. He curses the earth. Look what it says. This is the second half of verse 17 in Genesis 3. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles. And you will eat the plants of the field. It will produce thorns. The physical representation of the curse of sin on the earth was thorns. You fast forward the story and Jesus being surrounded by soldiers who are mocking him as king place a crown of thorns on his head. Jesus is bearing the physical representation of the curse of sin as a crowned king. This is incredible. These thorns were a sign of the curse that came because of sin and because of Adam and now the sign of the kingship and victory of Jesus. The first Adam brought the curse. The last Adam brought the cure. He was crowned with the literal curse of earth. Not, they didn't understand what they were doing. They didn't get the symbolism there. But when God cursed the earth and said thorns are going to grow, Jesus was bearing the curse of the earth as his crown on the cross. And it's incredible. He wasn't just a king of the Jews, as they said. He was king of the whole earth. Because his crown symbolized the whole earth. Augustine said this, The kingdom which was not of this world overcame that proud world, not by the ferocity of fighting, but by the humility of suffering. It's incredible. This crown was a crown of the whole world. And Jesus bore it 
He bore the curse of sin and death. And he bore the curse of the earth through his death. This, this crown is monumental to the story of Jesus' kingship. Now you say, no, okay, so what about the throne? If you know the rest of the story, you know that in Matthew 27, we just read it, that the very last verse of that, verse 31, ends with them leading Jesus away to be crucified, right? He didn't stop on the way to sit on a throne. He didn't go back to Pilate and push him over to the side and sit down on the throne. You guys know the story. He's nailed to the cross. He's lifted into the air, and he is left to die. And that's exactly what he did. Roman soldiers kind of ensured that by stabbing Jesus in the side with his spear. They broke the legs of the two other men who were being crucified with him. And they knew that they needed to get the bodies down because Passover was coming. Who wants to celebrate Passover with bodies on crosses? So we've got to speed this process up. By the time they get to Jesus, he's already dead. They stab him to make sure. And he is dead. The... The job of the soldier was to ensure that because if the criminal got down and got better, then the soldier in charge paid the penalty for that criminal. He had a lot of motivation to make sure Jesus was dead. Joseph of Arimathea comes along and says, can I take the body? Pilate allows that. He places it in a tomb. They roll a stone in front of it. They seal the tomb and they put soldiers to guard because they were waiting for something to happen. There had been enough buzz around Jerusalem. There's been enough things happening around there that even Pilate himself knew that that there may be something that's still afoot. Maybe, Maybe the Jews will try still something else. Friday evening, Nothing. Saturday was uneventful. Nothing. Sunday morning, everything changes. The ladies come to anoint the body of Jesus and the seal is broken. The stone is rolled and the tomb is empty. I'm going to say that again. The tomb is empty. There's no one there. The Jewish leaders, the Roman guards, even Rome itself in extra-biblical writings and things that are not just Scripture, things that are historical writings, they don't deny the empty tomb. They know it was empty. But no one was expecting a resurrection. Even the people who were closest to Jesus didn't get it. The women who had run to the tomb to, to anoint the body of Jesus run back to the disciples. This is John chapter 20, verse 2. It says, they have taken our Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. Right? They're, they're scared. They're, they're anxious. They're nervous. They're, they're wondering what's going on. Skip down to verse 15 in John chapter 20. This is Jesus is, is standing there and he's speaking to Mary. And Mary thinks he's a gardener, right? Thinking he was a gardener. She said, sir, if you've carried him away, just tell me where you put him and I will get him. They didn't expect the resurrection until they saw him. Until Jesus meets them on the roads and he goes to the upper room And he cooks a meal by the Sea of Galilee, right? We have all these different kind of tidbits of the story of Jesus revealing himself to 
his disciples and the people who were closest to him. Remember, they, he kind of reinstates Peter on the side of the sea. If you love me, feed my sheep. He, the Bible says he goes and he, he, he visits James, his brother, which is an incredible moment in 1 Corinthians. It says, and he appeared to James. James, who, who did not believe Jesus was the Christ. Every time the brothers of Jesus are mentioned in Scripture, they're making fun of him. They're, they're kind of, oh yeah, going up there and, and take care of that. They don't get it. They didn't connect it. And then James, Jesus' brother, is, is, kind of has this one-on-one moment with Jesus. The next time we read James's name, he's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Something changed in James's life from an unbeliever to, see, to being a leader of the church. And that change is seeing a resurrected Jesus. Changes everything. Because dead people normally don't do that, right? We don't, we don't expect that out of someone that we saw and that we know was dead. The message of Jesus changes no longer. Is it our rabbi has been killed, but now it's Christ has been raised. It's incredible. If you read the first 10 uh, chapters of the book of Acts, you see the same message being uh, given over and over and over again. The early church, Peter and Paul, uh, both, I believe, uh, shared this message. Three points, that's where we get ours from. I don't know, they never pulled me aside and said, give three points. Three points to this message in the first eight chapters of Acts. You killed him, God raised him, we are all witnesses. That's perfect. It's the easiest message in the world to preach. You killed him, God raised him, and we all know it. Because we've seen him. And you've talked to people who have seen him. We can't deny the fact that he's back alive again. God killed, or you killed him, God raised him, and we've all witnessed it. The message of Jesus was the message of a resurrected Savior. It's the reason why we're still talking about him today. Because people have died. Listen, every one of the apostles, apart from John, died believing in a resurrected Jesus. We're not talking about the apostles anymore because they're still in the grave waiting our resurrection. There's only one person who walked out of the grave, and that is Jesus. Can't deny it. We've all seen it. Jesus appears to his people, the Bible says, for a period of 40 days. He's teaching them. He's eating with them. He's spending time with them. He's pouring into them. And then at the end of Luke, at the end of Mark, and at the beginning of the book of Acts, it's all recorded for us that Jesus ascends to heaven, right? He gives them the charge, and then he ascends to heaven. And from this point forward in Scripture, Any mention of Jesus mentions him seated in the throne room at the right hand of the Father, right? We've all read verses like that. We're familiar with those verses. And if you're like me, I visualize and picture everything. So I see like, I vision this big throne, right? And God is sitting on the throne and next to him is this like chair, And Jesus is sitting in the chair at the right hand of the Father. Makes sense to me. He's in the throne room. He's seated next to the Father at the right hand of the Father. 
Over and over in Scripture, that thought is relayed. Psalms 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord, set at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. Romans 8.34, Jesus Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, is also interceding for us. Mark 16.19, so then the Lord Jesus, after he spoken to them, was taken up to heaven and set down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 12.2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. I could keep reading. Luke 22, 69, 1 Peter 3, 22, Hebrews 1, 3, Acts 7, 55, Colossians 3, 1, Hebrews 8, 1, Matthew 22, 44, Ephesians 1, 20. All say the same thing. Seated at the right hand of the Father. But as I studied for this, I struggled. Because in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of God. And he says something really interesting that almost seems to conflict with all those things I just read. Here's what it says. It's on the screen. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So how do we navigate a statement by Jesus saying he's going to sit on his throne and all the other statements in Scripture that say he sits at the right hand of the Father? This is so great. We were at the beginning a while ago. Let's go to the very end, book of Revelation. Told you we're going to be all over the place this morning. Book of Revelation opens with the Apostle John receiving a vision of Jesus telling him to write letters to the seven churches. You guys who've maybe grown up in church realize this is, uh, there's lots of symbolism here. We're not going to get into all that. One of those churches is the church of Laodicea. Remember, this is the one that is neither hot nor cold, but is lukewarm. If you remember that, maybe you've even heard the preacher preach about that. Here's what it says. Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. This is in the letter to the church at Laodicea. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus sat with the Father on his throne. Not in a separate chair next to him, but with him at his right hand on the throne. Then the Bible says that the heavens open and John got to witness the throne room of heaven. It's an incredible picture that he paints in, in, in such in really intricate detail. This is so great. All the, he sees this throne room of God and he sees these creatures kind of encircling the throne and they're in constant worship. Holy, holy, holy is the one, is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. Right? We remember those kind of verses from Scripture. And then verse 1 of chapter 5 says this Then I saw at the right hand of him who sat, on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven 
seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then, then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Hang on a second. Remember the angel said the lion? But what does John see? John sees the lamb looking as if it had been slain. And where was it standing? saw a lamb looking at it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. That, that word standing means firm, fixed, and established. It's the Greek word histemi. And it means he's there and you're not moving him. Jesus is firmly established in the center of of the throne. He is sharing the throne of God the Father. This is not two separate thrones that they're sitting on. It's not a chair beside it. He is established on the throne in his rightful position. No one else gets to sit there beside the Father on the throne besides Jesus. After this, Jesus takes the scroll and all of heaven worships with him. Verse 5, you're worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men from God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and to reign on earth. Verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and glory and honor. And Every time people talk about the lamb in heaven, it's because of what he did on the cross. His his position of praise is worthy because of the position on the cross. Because he bore the sin of the world. Verse 13, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever That phrase, to him who sits on the throne, is a collective thought of oneness. It's God the Father and God the Son. You're on the throne together and you are worthy of our praise. And here's my last thought, church. It's a hard one. This crushed king, this peaceful king, this triumphant king, this crucified king, this crowned king, this resurrected king, this king that sits on the throne and rules and reigns. The question has to be asked is, is he the king of your heart? He's king of all these other things. We've established that. His crown and his throne signify him royally as king. Everything that's led up to the crucifixion, to his resurrection, his ascension, his heavenly session points to Jesus as king. And I realized that all that doesn't matter unless he's king 
of your heart. Remember, I told you I didn't care nothing about the Queen of England. I don't, I don't keep up with the royal family. I don't care if they wear fancy hats. I don't care. Because that king never did anything for me. That king didn't die for me. There's only one king that's done that. And it hit me this week. There's a lot of us, too many of us, I think, that know Jesus is king. We know what he did. We understand the price that he paid. We could probably even quote the Easter narrative with somewhat accuracy. When it comes down to it, our hearts already have a king. That throne of our heart is already occupied. Maybe it's a, a king of popularity or convenience. We submit to kings of addiction and apathy, kings of culture and kings of political correctness. We serve kings of selfishness and of pride and consumption. We consume things and of comparison. We have to keep up. My sin's not as bad as their sin. Look what they've done. Or at least I'm not doing this. We're comparing. And this king of comparison rules our hearts. We put our wants and our desires as kings. We put our schedules and our free time as king. And sometimes, listen, church, we put our kids as kings. And hear me, with all the love in the world, those things cannot be kings of your heart because there's room for only one on that throne. We have to stop serving these other things. We have to stop bowing down to these other things because those things haven't earned the right to occupy our heart. He has. Those things haven't done the things necessary to sit on the throne. He has. If all of heaven cries out, no one is worthy, nothing is worthy except him. Jesus was crushed for us. He was crowned for us. He was crucified for us. He was raised for us. He redeems us. He provides right relationship for us. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of the whole world. And he's earned the right to be king of your heart. Listen, I don't want you to miss this. Because in the crowd that gathers for Sunday, we love to assume that just everybody here understands and knows who Jesus is. We get that we understand this picture of crowning and throning and all this kind of stuff. But there may be somebody here this morning that has never put that together. Who's never even really stopped long enough to understand that there's a God in heaven that loves them so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for them on a cross. A sinless sacrifice. But because of that first Adam, the second one and the last one had to come. Because of the sin curse that the earth was given, dust to dust, we had a penalty that we owed to God that we could not repay. So Jesus comes, and he lives, and he shows us what it means to really live for God. And he takes upon his shoulders something that he did not have to do. He died in our place because the penalty of sin is death. But the gift of God... It's eternal life 
Jesus comes and he dies on the cross and he pays that penalty of death. But what he does three days later on Easter Sunday proves to the whole world that death has no power over him. He comes back alive. He walks out of the tomb and he gives hope to those who put their hope in him that we will have life everlasting. Some of you go, man, I've heard that a thousand times, but I don't know that I've ever really believed it. Because hear me. It's more than just praying a prayer and walking an aisle. It's a surrender of your heart to a king. It's bowing and serving a God who sits on a throne. It's bigger than just, I said this magic combination of words. It's not. It's your heart that you surrender. And maybe for this morning, maybe there's been some of you that may have never really done that. I'm not here to get you to question that. I'm not here to make you think about that. I'm here to make you think, I need to make sure that I'm serving the only king that's worthy to sit on the throne. And so if, I'm just going to say it, if, if you have not, then what better day to, to connect those dots than Easter Sunday morning? What better day than to say, you know what? I need to get saved. I need to kind of come underneath this king and be forgiven and have right relationship with the Father and have a promised home in heaven than on Easter Sunday morning. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask everybody in here just to stand and to close your eyes and to bow your head. This is our moment. We call this an invitation moment because it's an invitation for you to do business with God, to, to step out and to handle the business that needs to be handled. With the heads bowed and your eyes closed, I'm going to ask you three things today. One, if you don't know who Jesus is, then I'm going to ask for you to come talk to me. I'd love to tell you about who he is. If you don't want to come down here, then grab somebody sitting next to you and say, man, I need to get this figured out. I need to get saved. They would love to walk you through it. And the greatest part of that is there's no, there's no magic combination of words. You just express in your heart that you know you're a sinner in need of a Savior. That you're thankful that Jesus did what he did on the cross for you and you put your hope and trust in him to save you. That's all it takes. Bible says those who confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead will be saved, period. We're confessing and we're believing. That is church salvation. Second thing I want to ask if maybe, maybe you've been saved, maybe you just haven't been living it, maybe you just haven't been doing what you're supposed to be doing, maybe, maybe Easter kind of kind of kicks you in the mouth a little bit and you're like, i got to get back to doing the things that I know I'm supposed to be doing. This is an invitation of repentance as well. This is where you get to just say to God, I'm sorry. I'm going to do better. I'm going to commit to better things, better decisions, better priorities. Maybe some of us here need to, to rearrange the priority of our heart and put him back on the throne. I'm saved, but I'm not living like you're the king of my heart. This opportunity for repentance is just as real as the opportunity for salvation, which is also just as real as the third part. So people just need to come down and pray. And the altar's always open to pray. You don't have to pray with me if you don't want to. I'd love to pray with you if you want to. 
Maybe you need to join our church. You've been attending here for a long time and you've never just joined. I believe God's doing incredible things in Emmanuel. Maybe you need to join the church this morning. Maybe, maybe you've been saved, but you've never been baptized. You've never had this moment of spiritual expression with a physical representation of baptism, dying to sin, being raised to life in Christ. Putting away your old life, living this new life. Maybe you need to come and say, I need to get baptized. We're going to have a baptism service here very soon. We've got three people who are ready to get baptized right now. Salvation, repentance, prayer, church membership. This is, this is your opportunity to respond to what God is speaking very clearly to your heart. Don't miss this opportunity. Don't let your pride keep you in your pew. Come when I say amen. Let's handle some business with God. Father, we love you and we thank you for today. We thank you for the message of the cross and of the empty tomb and of the resurrected Savior. God, as we've looked for weeks now about how all those things point to you being king, God, this morning it's pointed at our heart. And Father, we pray that you are in your right position. For those of us here that maybe just need to reprioritize, God, I pray you do that. But for those of us here that, that need to surrender for the first time and be saved, God, I pray this morning we do that. God, if they need to join, if they need to be baptized, if they just need somebody to pray with them and let them know that somebody actually cares, God, this is your opportunity to work in our hearts and we're just asking you to be real. And Father, I'm asking you for us to be real back. God, let us be transparent. Let us be vulnerable. And let us respond to the truth of your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. I'm going to ask you to keep your head down and your eyes closed. If you need to come, you come. TJ's going to sing over us. You guys come.